You're listening to episode two of the Stronger by Science podcast, in which Greg Knuckles tells us about his recent study comparing fatigue and recovery rates between males and females. We've also got an interview with Dr. Jason Kaliva, who is a professor at Coastal Carolina University. And we spoke with Jason about betaine supplementation, the state of research and exercise science, and the state of higher education as a whole. Now, before we begin, I have a little announcement. We recently spent months revamping the online coaching program at Stronger by Science, and we're finally able to open up some one-on-one coaching spots. We are running a one-week sale starting today, May 30th. We've got a really talented coaching staff, and I am stoked that our new and improved coaching service is ready to roll. So if you've been thinking about signing up with a Stronger by Science coach, now would be the time to do it because the sale ends on June 6th. And finally, the first few minutes of this episode has some spoilers for Avengers Endgame and for the final season of Game of Thrones. So if you want to avoid those spoilers, just look at the timestamps in the episode description and you can skip ahead to the segment called Feats of Strength. All right, that's enough announcements. Enjoy episode two. Welcome. If you are listening to this, that means two things. You made it past our very unlikable, sarcastic sense of humor in episode one and decided (laughs) to try another. It also means that you've forgiven Greg for his last minute misogyny at the end of (laughs) of episode one. He apologized to me and his family profusely for that. Uh, Or they just didn't listen to episode one. Or they just didn't listen. (laughs) Which all things considered is most likely. That is the highest likelihood. Uh, So anyway, we're glad to have you for episode two. Um, And this is quite a momentous day for the Stronger by Science family because I have the opportunity. By the way, I'm Eric Trexler, your host. (laughs) I have the opportunity. We're, we're, we're off to a smashing start so far. <laughs> I have the opportunity, the honor, to be the first person to present Master Greg Knuckles. Now, Greg defended his master's thesis yesterday successfully, and he's always been a master to me because that's just his management style, <laughs> but, but now it's official, so... Uh, <laughs> So Greg is still a temporary host, still on his kind of probationary period. Um, he made some big mistakes episode one, but we're going to give it another shot. But Greg, welcome. Uh, thank you. Um, I don't think I'm actually, I don't think I have the, I don't have the degree yet, do I? You do not. Yeah, I, I don't know how that works. Um, I I can fill you in. You're, um, you're being a little intemperate here. Well, it's it's kind of like... If you're a knight, you can make other people a knight. Because I have a PhD, I can kind of make anybody a master, I think. I'm the I'm the Brienne in this situation. Is that a spoil do we have to spoiler alert that? I don't think so. I mean okay. it's been it's been like a week and a half. And this'll be up in a couple weeks anyway. Yeah. So Yeah, I was gonna say that, but I was like, let me generalize that that situation. Fair enough. That's a Game of Thrones reference if you're listening and have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, so what happens is when you've completed all of the degree, like for a PhD, except your dissertation defense, then you're, you're ABD. I don't think there's an equivalent for that with the master's unless for some reason you did the whole degree and were delayed on the, on the defense part, mm-hmm. uh, which that, that actually does happen now that I think of it. So you're kind of like all but dissertation or all but, but thesis or whatever. Um, then after you're there, so you've done all the requirements of the degree and you've defended whatever thesis or dissertation you're doing, then you're called a graduand, like okay. A-N-D at the end. 
And so it's not a graduate, but it basically means you did everything you're supposed to do, you're supposed to do, but graduation day hasn't come yet. I see. Um, so I, I, the only reason I know that is because I had to send out some manuscripts and like sign cover letters in that little waiting period. And I was mm-hmm. like, who am I? And that's who you are right now. You are, are a graduand cool. of a master's program. I'll take it. So, and then once the degree comes in the mail, it'll be official. So then, I, feel, then I will be a master of arts. You will be an artistic master. Yes. yes. Um, that's a weird thing about our masters is that it's a master of arts, not a master of science. Yeah. So, so for people listening, if you've ever looked at Eric's CV and you see that it's MA PhD, uh, and mine will soon be MA as well. Uh, the reason why the exercise physiology program at UNC is a master of arts and not a master of science is we don't actually take that many classes. And I think the way the university determines whether something's a MA or an MS is how many science classes you have to take like for the actual degree program. And so UNC is, is fairly light on the academics to give the students more time to be in the lab and actually do science. So ironically, like, it's a master of arts so we can actually do more science. Yeah. And of everyone I talked to, no one has cared yet that I'm not a real scientist. Cool. I've got a, I actually have a bachelor's in education, a master's in art. And then my doctorate is in philosophy, obviously. Yeah. A PhD. That's what the PH stands for. So I haven't figured out science yet. I haven't cracked that <laughs> nut. Um, Academia is weird. It is a strange place with a lot of very elaborate robes and hats. Now, how do you feel? Different now that you're almost a master? Not really. Other than that, you're doing good? Yeah. Did you like Avengers the other night? We, we went out with a big group of people and saw it. It's, it has to be, It must have been like kind of opening night, right? Uh, opening night was... We saw it like five days after opening. God, it was still really crowded. Yeah. Um, so also for people listening... Uh, Eric came and saw Avengers with us. He had not seen any MCU movie up to this point. Um, so I imagine he was very confused. But, you know, there was there was like some some stuff that would make more sense if you knew the characters better. But like most of the cool parts are just the action scenes anyways. Yeah, I, I had a good time. But it's like it's kind of like if you go to Jaws 2 and yeah. you're sitting there and it's like, oh, I didn't see Jaws 1. Somebody can nudge you and be like, dude, really big shark. Yeah. Like, huge shark. Just to fill you in, the shark is the bad guy here. (laughs) Right. So with this one, it's like, instead of not seeing the first one, I haven't seen the first, like, 16. 22. 22. That's even worse. (laughs) And so at the beginning, um, my girlfriend was kind of nudging me and trying to give me backstories as we went. And I kind of just called her off and was like, there's really no point here. Because, like... Superhero backstories are insane. It's always yeah. like, so here's the thing. He can fly at night, uh, but not during the day. Um, his main thing is he's lactose intolerant. That's going to be big when they have a scene in like the <laughs> cheese processing plant. And uh, he also got his heart broken. And that's like his whole thing is he's trying to avenge that. Yeah. Every single character had like a 30 page backstory. So I just, you know. I mean, I really, really all you need to know is purple man bad. Yeah, I picked up on that. Yeah. Very, very bad. Very bad man. Um, but no, it was, it was good. I, so 
I thought it was good. I actually preferred Infinity War, if I'm being honest, um, which you haven't seen. So uh, it doesn't mean I don't have that an means opinion to you. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, yeah, I don't know. I felt like I like shows with stakes, and it felt just very like happily ever after type deal. Like there, there were some. So not to spoil it, but like there were some some key characters that died. But if you've been following Marvel movies, like you, even if you didn't know the plot of Endgame, you knew those characters were going to die because their contracts with Marvel Studios were up. Um, and they were like, eh, no, I want to go act in different things and like broaden the base of projects I work on. It's like you already knew who was going to die. Um, not me. I was on the edge of my seat. Fair enough. Didn't care, but I was still only on the edge of my seat. Anyway, I, I thought it was good. I thought that uh, Season 8, Episode 3 of Game of Thrones was better, though. Yeah, that was pretty crazy. Yeah. We, like, Which... we, we saw those on back-to-back nights. And I think if I would have seen Endgame with that Game of Thrones episode not fresh in my mind, I would have been like, whoa, this is awesome. But it kind of paled in comparison, if yeah. I'm being honest. It, I, I agree. And we all, we also had somebody over for that Game of Thrones episode that had never seen. I guess he had seen one Game of Thrones episode before that, and and it was only the prior episode that was all exposition. Yeah, so he he was as lost as I was during Avengers, but <laughs> I think we both had a good time anyway. Yeah. Now we haven't done this segment yet, but I think this is a perfect week to do it. The segment is called Feats of Strength, and we had a couple. A couple big ones this week and you brought both of these to my attention so i'm gonna let you uh have the honors here yeah so if if you're listening and you follow powerlifting you probably know about both of these already but if you don't who buddy they're crazy um so john hack recently totaled 1962 at 181 um that was via a 677 squat 501 bench and 782 deadlift to to the best of my knowledge uh john is still drug free um and if that's the case that makes this even crazier and even if it's not i don't care because it's still (laughs) an absolutely ridiculous total um so for my money, the previous most impressive raw total of all time probably was um, Jesse Norris's 2033 at 198. And so to be, you know, basically 70 pounds off that in the next weight class down, that's wild. Like, I, I, I honestly think that in terms of like male raw powerlifting that may be the most impressive total of all time for my money yeah and like to your point you mentioned like drug or no drug you don't really care no the only thing because i've competed at 181 yeah the only thing you could make me that you could do to make me total that would be if you did like a singularity thing and just merged my skeleton with a forklift or something like there's there's no amount of drugs and wishful thinking on the planet you know yeah so uh, it it was this was pretty humbling for me because like I I'm a I'm a reasonably good powerlifter, and my ultimate goal in the sport is I'd really like to total two thousand at two twenty, and potentially twenty one hundred at two forty two, um, and like 
like I said, like I'm not a scrub powerlifter. Not at all. And and I'm basically aiming to do what John just did, but two weight classes higher. <laughs> and that and and those would be numbers that I'd feel like, okay, I can die happy now. Yeah. Um dude's just on another level. Like that's that's a ridiculous total. You know, I, I had that kind of number in my head. We, we both have the, the detriment <laughs> or, or the privilege of having gotten into the sport before all the strong people did. True. My thing that I really wanted to do, and this is embarrassing in hindsight, I, I was going to be thrilled to squat 500 at 181. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that'd be a really nice number for me. Yeah, that, man, and, that that's something people miss, though. It, like, back in the day, if if you were sub 200 and you had a 500 squat, we were like, oh, that's a strong dude. No, like w- when I did that at the state meet in Ohio in mm-hmm. 2012, I was like, you know, I kind of puffed my chest out walking down the hallway. Yeah. And people were like, oh, that guy had a hell of a squat. This He squatted 677. He benched 501. Yeah. Like that's really, really scary. Yeah. A 500 squat at 181 these days is probably good for like... 30th place at nationals yeah it is bad it is not not good (laughs) (laughs) but uh and then the other one which i thought this one was even more ridiculous um but mariana gasparian squatted uh 573 so that's 260 kilos at 123 which was that was raw with knee wraps mariana is not a tested athlete um i would be shocked to find out if she were drug free. Uh, but again, that does not matter to me one iota. Because that's that's a ridiculous number. Uh, that's 4.7 times body weight. And it's actually um, it's actually like 20 pounds over the male world record in that weight class. Which I don't think that's literally ever happened in any strength sport ever. Yeah. Um, and equally impressive... It's not just the squat. Both her and Steffi Cohen broke both the men's and women's world record for the total in that weight class as well this past weekend. Um, but just that squat, man, like that's that's an outrageous squat. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's crazy. And, and we were just kind of going over those total records. And I, I think you said four of the top six in that weight class Uh for untested federations were women across all federations across all federations yeah okay and i mean i'm sure a big chunk of that is there just aren't that many men who weigh 123 that tested yeah tested or 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 untested yeah Uh, but especially but but still like even so just the fact that there are men who compete in that weight class um in general, like the sex difference in strength is so large that no matter how good a female lifter is, she may be better than the vast majority of men in the world. But typically, there's a pretty big gulf between the top men and the top women in any weight class. Um, so we mentioned John Hack at 181 earlier. Um, the most impressive untested woman in that class is uh, Shakira Ingram formerly Shakira Holcomb. Um, And she's absurdly strong. Like, I I don't want to downplay this at all. Like, she's an unbelievably impressive lifter. Uh, She totals close to 1,600 
at 181 untested which like that would be that's a, a lot of weight yeah and that would be a very very competitive men's total yeah. in that weight class but you know hack is out totaling her by close to 400 pounds yeah so for mariana and steffi to both break the men's world record at 123 regardless of the fact that there aren't that many men at 123 like that's still absurdly impressive yeah it's crazy and you mentioned you know those strength differences between men and women is that something you know a little thing about one or two things so i mentioned greg defended his thesis yesterday and i was there in the flesh i thought he did a great job i took notes um so we'd like to discuss that a little bit while it's fresh on the mind so greg can you tell the the listeners kind of the just the, the topic first yeah, so I was looking at uh, fatigability and recovery rates between men and women. Right. And, you know, I, I thought your presentation was awesome. You started out by kind of highlighting some of the differences between men and women when it comes to both fatigue and recovery from strength training um, and strength in general, I think you, you mentioned as well. Do you, mm-hmm. do you mind um, going over some of those for us? Yeah, so um, the the relevant physiological differences when it comes to fatigue rate is women, on average, tend to have uh, a higher proportion of type 1 muscle fibers. It's, it's hard to know how relevant that actually is. I'm not aware of research saying that, like, you know, if, if you have a 10% greater relative abundance of type 1 fibers, you will be X percent less fatigable. Uh, but type 1 fibers are a little less fatigable than type 2 fibers, so um, that is a, a physiological difference whereby one would expect women to be less fatigable. Um, on top of the fiber type differences, due to the effects of estrogen primarily, women have different patterns of substrate utilization. So at any relative exercise intensity, women have... Um, a slightly lower reliance on anaerobic metabolism and a slightly lower reliance on glucose metabolism, um, which means like you're going to burn through glycogen a little more slowly. You don't accumulate lactate and metabolic waste quite as quickly, um, etc. So that's a relevant difference. Um, and the final thing which which prior to this study I thought may have been the most important thing um, was just women have smaller muscles than men. Again, not in all cases, but on average. And one of the things that occurs when you're contracting your muscles pretty hard is they increase... Like, if you flex your bicep, it increases uh, in, in circumference, like the muscle itself. And so that's going to put pressure on the blood vessels that run through the muscle. And so larger muscles are going to put a greater occlusive pressure on veins and arteries, which could limit oxygen delivery and waste clearance. Um, And so the thinking there being, okay, women have slightly smaller muscles. They're, They're going to have to be using their muscles harder to exert the same amount of occlusive pressure on their blood vessels. So just oxygen delivery, waste clearance may be a little bit more efficient. In terms of differences that may be relevant for recovery, um, again, it it probably mostly comes down to sex hormones. So estrogen um, helps to stabilize the sarcolemma and decreases macrophage infiltration of damaged tissue a little bit. 
If that sounds like complete gobbledygook, essentially what it does is it helps prevent uh, some degree of muscle damage. Like, muscle damage still occurs, but after a given relative stimulus, women will have a little bit less, like, disruption of the actual muscle fibers themselves. And limiting macrophage infiltration, that essentially means less swelling, less edema, less inflammation within the muscle. So it should recover a little bit quicker um, and not have, like, greater secondary damage due to like a very large inflammatory response and then as far as recovery goes estrogen helps um with basically like all stages of of the life cycle of satellite cells so activation differentiation proliferation uh and then donation of myonuclei to the muscle fibers so that should improve recovery, but also testosterone does the exact same thing. So it's hard to really say that that's a sex difference. Like it's a sex right. difference that women have more estrogen, but men also have a sex hormone that's doing all of the same stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, those are those are most of the key physiological differences that would lead one to expect that there might be differences in fatigue and recovery. Yeah, and I like how you say you say would lead one to expect that yeah. there would be a difference because the worst kept secret in exercise science is that we basically built an entire body of literature only <laughs> studying men. Right. Yeah. Um, and so now there's a lot of, a lot of interest in saying, what about the other half of humans? Yeah. You know, do these things really generalize? And so, so now there, there's a, a lot more effort being put toward venturing into essentially building a new literature from scratch, mm -hmm. you know, well, not, not necessarily building a new literature from scratch, but but kind of seeing how much we know about men does actually generalize to women. Right. And and so one of the things I, I, I've always pushed for the idea that there are several really pressing research questions where, where there's very obvious reasons to say, I'm not sure, you know, what we've been generalizing from men to women, mm -hmm. I think there's good reason to think that that's not a safe generalization. And so... I've kind of gotten into arguments where it's it's we need more of this female research, but we need to prioritize what's done in terms of like, do we have a strong rationale for why there would be a difference? Yeah, and I, I yeah. think it's very lazy to say, well, it was all done in men. So let's just do like one to one replications of every study out there. Mm -hmm. Like that would be essentially rebuilding a literature from scratch. Yeah. But I think in the short term, it's really important to do a targeted approach to like, what are the most realistic, you know, pressing research questions where we think there would be a difference mm -hmm. and kind of attack those first before we start building out from there. For sure. So I, I think this is one of those really solid research questions where, as you've just discussed, there's a very strong foundation for why a person would expect that fatigue and recovery are different in men versus women. There are mechanisms that would underlie such a difference but now it's time to actually do the, the research and find that out. Mm -hmm. So in your literature review, were there any like really big gaps that you saw that, that kind of reaffirmed your idea that like, yeah, this is the study that needs to be done now? Uh, so as far as fatigability stuff goes, the biggest gap is just there, there are actually a lot of studies there, but most of them use protocols or measures that wouldn't really be relevant to most athletes or coaches. So like probably a solid 80% of that research just uses isometric exercise. 
um, which is good for being able to tease out mechanisms because the muscles just there in place doing a contraction against an immovable force, basically. Um, so, so isometric meaning that the muscle length doesn't really change during the contraction. So like doing a wall sit or just kind of stationary, like flexing of a muscle would be an isometric. Um, so yeah, that stuff is interesting, but it's hard to know how well that's going to actually port over to, you know, doing something like squat or bench press or 90% of the exercises we would do in the gym. Uh, the isometric literature indicates that women are less fatigable than men but again it's hard to know how well that that'll actually generalize to like normal training um then of the research that does actually use dynamic resistance exercise it's a lot of the models they use don't reflect what i think a lot of people care about in practice when they think fatigability so the, the most common ways that people will go about addressing the question is like, just take one set to failure at a given percentage of one rep max and see like, okay, like strength endurance, you know, can men or women do more reps at 70% of their max over one set? Um, most of that research finds that there's not much of a difference, but also I don't think that that's the type of stuff most people care about. They're more interested in like, you know, when I'm prescribing volume over an entire session for a male lifter versus a female lifter, should I expect to need to prescribe more volume for the man versus the woman? Um, and then probably the second most common experimental approach is just to like do three sets to failure or something and see total reps completed with, over with each set going to failure. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Um, which again, that, that, kind of resembles like a traditional bodybuilding approach, but that's not the way most strength athletes would train. Um, Most of the time, you're not going to be taking literally every set to failure. So it's hard to know how well that generalizes as well. Um, So yeah, as far as fatigability goes, there's a fair amount of research, but it's hard to know how applicable uh, most of it is. And then for recovery, most of the research that exists only uses eccentric exercise. Um, There's a good reason for that. So if you're just trying to induce muscle damage in a lab setting, you eccentric exercise causes way, way more muscle damage than concentric. Um, So that's the reason it's used most frequently. But the problem with that is that literature is probably biased against women. Um, So most people know this, but your muscles can produce more force eccentrically than concentrically and the eccentric to concentric strength ratio on average is higher for women than men so if you're doing something like you know like sets of 10 at 80 percent maximum eccentric force or something like that um that may be you know around one rep max force for men but it may be like 120 percent of one rep max force for women um, because they have a higher eccentric to concentric strength ratio. Um, and yeah, like, again, you have ecological validity issues because that's just not how most people typically train, yeah. just only doing eccentrics. And, and just for conte- context, eccentrics are when you're loading the muscle as it's lengthening. Correct. So basically doing like negatives. Yeah, or something yeah like, like a that. heavy negative. So yeah, a lot of this literature is, you know, isometric, isometric or eccentric only, mm-hmm. which... Um, close to nobody is really really training that way correct yeah 
Um, and then of of the research that uses like normal dynamic exercises, like the type of stuff we would typically do in the gym, um, most studies just don't look at performance outcomes. And the ones that do, uh, if they're monitoring recovery of strength, tend to just use isometric measures or just look at an isolated muscle. So, you know, have people do squats and then see, you know, how is their knee extension strength changing over the next three days instead of like, how is their squat performance changing over the next three days as they recover? Um, so yeah, with the, with the fatigue stuff, generally the experimental protocols don't look the way most people train. And with the fatigue stuff, the actual protocols they use tend to be a little more similar to how most people would typically train, but the things they're looking at to assess recovery generally aren't the type of stuff that most athletes or coaches would care about. Um, so what, what I was aiming to do with my study wasn't necessarily to, you know, be the first person to look at male versus female fatigue and recovery, but to do so with uh, an experimental model and recovery assessments that are the type of things that most people listening to this would actually care about. Right. Yeah. So it's one of the great things about, you've probably seen this as well. There's a lot more people I see that are really into lifting that have spent years and years and years under the bar that are getting into research and kind of higher education in the field. Mm -hmm. And I think the more we see that, I would speculate there's going to be more people like you who come, come along and say, we can still answer this research question and maintain some of the ecological validity. You know, the more we have people that care about the ecological validity, I think the more we're going to see those types of designs. (laughs) We, we were talking about this yesterday. Um, I don't think it would be the worst idea in the world if there was like a stipulation where, you know, before you, before you do like performance type research, at least get a couple people strong. (laughs) <laughs> like, like show that you understand the the actual stuff that like the people who are going to be applying the science well enough that you can do science that will actually affect practice in some way. Yeah. Or like, you know, if you're going to do like weight loss, weight loss stuff in like the sports nutrition space, at least like get someone shredded. Right. Like, like show you understand that world well enough to do research that's going to be relevant to it. And, and so like, if you're purely just doing research for other scientists and just looking at like pure physiology stuff, yeah, whatever, it doesn't matter. But if you're doing research that you like want it to be useful for practitioners, do some practitioner stuff to understand like what would actually be useful to you if you were in that world or get a practitioner involved. Yeah. Or that designs level. Yeah. You know, I mean, we always talk about like bridging the gap between science and application, but mm-hmm. it, there's not a lot of people who actually like crossing that bridge and, and getting the other side involved. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I knew a great scientist. His name's Eric Sobolewski. Um, I lived with him actually. And we had a prowler in our living room. <laughs> uh, he just had this gift where he would accumulate strength training equipment it just followed him around. He had like a storage unit full of like squat rack pieces and prowlers and stuff. Mm-hmm. But he told me the quote I'll never forget is if you can't measure it in pounds, it's not <laughs> worth measuring. Um, <laughs> he also uh, told me that if he ever started a lab, he would have like a special quotient he would calculate that would include 
uh, a potential student's powerlifting total and their GRE score because he didn't want people that were either too weak or too smart. So he kind of had this like <laughs> Goldilocks zone in the middle that compared their strength and their their standardized testing uh, scores. I, so, I feel like, I feel like that might be taking it a shade too far, but it's he it, was it's, mostly joking, but it, it's got the right spirit. It's got the right spirit. Yeah. So you you mentioned like you're not the first person who's thought, what if we compared the sexes in fatigue or or recovery? But you as you've kind of alluded to, the devil's really in the details in terms yeah. of how the study is put together and what the methods look like. So can you give us kind of the very brief description of how you went about answering that question? Yeah, so um, each participant came six times. Uh, first visit was just baseline testing, fill out some questionnaires, uh, get a DEXA scan. Um, arm lean mass was the primary thing I cared about from the DEXA. Um, and then at the end of the session, just work up to a one rep max. Um, and while working up to a one rep max, we got a load velocity profile. Um, and, and we got that so we could then subsequently estimate one rep maxes. Um, so essentially what we did is we did sets of three at 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, and 80% recorded the fastest rep of each set. And then from there, that load velocity profile, so if you graph like x-axis is percent one rep max, y-axis is um, mean concentric velocity, the relationship there is going to be like stunningly linear. The average R value in my study was like 0.993, which is And that's on a good. scale from zero to one. Correct. So, so that's, high. That's, that's quite good. <laughs> um and so then when you work someone up to a one rep max, you see how fast they move the bar at one rep max. Um, and so from then on, essentially what you can do is you only have to work someone up to 80%. You plot their load velocity profile as they're working up to 80%. And then you can extrapolate that trend line down to the velocity that they move one rep max loads and get a pretty accurate estimation of their one rep max. Uh, reason we did that was for monitoring recovery because, you know, I didn't want to just have people bench press and then test isolated elbow extension strength on a dynamometer. Like I wanted to have an idea of like, okay, like how are people's actual bench presses recovering? But obviously I don't want to put someone through a fatigue protocol, take them to failure, and then immediately after say, all right, we're going to max again. And tomorrow you're going to max again. Day after that, you're going to max again. And day after that, you're going to max again as well. Yeah. Um, I didn't want the the recovery assessments to basically turn into the Bulgarian method, right. uh, is what I'm saying. <laughs> um, and that's, that's both for participant safety and also to make sure I'm getting good data. Because if I want to see how people are recovering from a fatigue protocol, I don't want the testing of recovery to induce a lot of additional fatigue, which yeah. would then cloud the assessment. Um, probably so yeah. would have found no one ever recovers under any circumstance Correct. if that was your protocol. Yeah. 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 We, we see after a fatigue protocol, you're weaker the next day. What do you know? You're even weaker the day after that. <laughs> right. Three days post, 40% of people are injured and no one recovers. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. And, and because you have no actual weight training experience, you would then conclude in the literature, apparently no one's ever recovered from a training session before. Yeah. True. Yeah. Lifting is a hazard to society. Yes. Anyway, so that's what the load velocity profiles were for. And so then in session two, 
same stuff as session one, but no DEXA, no questionnaires. They just came in, worked up to a one rep max, got load velocity on the way up. Um, and then five minutes after they hit their max, strip it down to 75% of their max and just have one set to failure. The reason for that is to see how well just single set strength endurance could predict fatigability over something that simulates an entire training session. Um, so the fatigue protocol itself was on session three. So to start with, work people up to 80%, get their load velocity profile, then go back down to 75% and do sets of five with 90 seconds between sets just until someone reached the point of failure. So set of five, rest, rest 90 seconds from the time they rack the bar to the time they unrack it again. Set of five, rest 90 seconds, etc. Um, then got blood lactate pre and post and 10 minutes after they failed during the fatigue protocol, just get their load velocity profile again to see how much they've very, very acutely fatigued. Then days four through six, very straightforward. Come in, work them up to 80% load velocity profile, um, and then gave them questionnaires to assess soreness and sleep the previous night. So just asking how long did you sleep? Subjectively, how is your sleep quality? And then how sore are your pecs, triceps, and front delts on a scale from one to 100, basically? Uh, and that was that. Awesome. And you also took a lot of a lot of like background demographic information as well, right? Just just to make sure you had all your bases covered. Yeah. So so the questionnaires themselves were asking about sleep stuff. So we use the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality uh, Inventory Index, whatever PSQI. Uh, and for stress, we use the Perceived Stress Questionnaire, both of which are are validated questionnaires to get an idea of both the quantity and quality of someone's sleep, and then. Um, how how stressed someone perceives that they are, basically. Um, and then I had another questionnaire I made that was just looking at training background. So it asked uh, how long you've been lifting in general, how long you've been bench pressing, um, how many sets of bench press per week do you do, how many times per week do you bench press, what proportion of your sets of bench press are fewer than five reps? What proportion are between five and 15 reps? What proportion are greater than 15 reps? Uh, how long you rest between sets of bench press? And what your general training goal is for the bench press? Is it primarily to build muscle, gain strength, or to improve strength endurance? Yeah. And, and looking at that questionnaire, I think that's where it really showed that you are a person with experience in the area where you're mm -hmm. using that to inform, you know, yeah, what you're looking for in the study, or at least what you you've thought to account for. Yeah, because you know? if two people have three years of training experience, and you know, one person is like me, and I'm doing like a lot of heavy triples with five minutes between sets, and someone else is doing sets of twelve with sixty seconds between sets, so they're like me. Yeah, <laughs> like you, we, we may have like the same years of training experience, but the actual adaptations that would lead to probably considerably different. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to see if the way people habitually trained would affect their fatigability or how well they recovered from training. Yeah. And speaking of which, you did end up with a, a pretty well trained and pretty strong sample, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, average years of training experience... It was like 7.2 for men, 6.2 for women. Um, the men did have a little bit more experience with the bench press itself. Um, 
basically men for the most part started benching day one in the gym, which is very unsurprising. Yeah. Uh, most of the women had about two years of resistance training experience before they touched the bench press. So they'd been benching about four and a half years on average. Um, but yeah, pretty well trained. Um, I, I checked their IPF scores, um, to see whether like the, the male and female samples would be similarly competitive in the actual context of powerlifting. Cause like, that's what I care about. I, I, uh, I can say very confidently without doing any searching, you're the first person to do that. <laughs> uh, no, people use Wilk scores a fair amount. Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I could see that. Yeah. Uh, this may be the first one with IPF. Yeah, because the IPF thing's new, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, if Wilkes, if I would have used Wilkes, the results would have been the same. Right, yeah. Um, but yeah, so the average IPF points for for the men were like 434, um, using like the bench press specific formula. And for the women was like 460. Mm-hmm. Um, so very, very similar. And... Just to contextualize that, like what the IPF formula does is it it basically crams everything into a normal distribution, also accounting for weight and sex, such that the mean of the distribution is 500 and a standard deviation is 100. So with IPF points in the mid 400s, essentially they the people in my sample were not as good of benchers as the average competitive powerlifter, which I wouldn't expect them to be. But they were mostly within one standard deviation, so they would have been at home at a powerlifting meet, but not particularly great powerlifters. Yeah. So pretty good. Um, average male bench was like two thirty. Average female bench was not quite one thirty five. Like with for the last participant, it was like two pounds under one thirty five. So uh, I was hoping that she was going to be like super strong and pull the average above one thirty five, just because yeah. I think that would be cool. Um, cause the men did, did crack the two plate barrier, but she wasn't super jacked. So yeah, it was like one twenty nine or something, Yeah, but you, you know, that's pretty good. Yeah. So I've had the privilege of actually seeing under the hood a little bit when yeah. it comes to the results and the data, uh, which I'm sworn to secrecy on, but, um, I, I, by the way, never would have imagined uh, as a, you know, as an 18 year old kid who's like, oh, maybe I'll study exercise science that we'd find ourselves in a place where we get to like run studies and actually like handle data and stuff like I I still (laughs) it it never gets old to me that we can like do cool studies we care about and actually be that person a few years later where you're just hanging out with your friends, like looking at your data. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. I agree. Now. Can you give us a rundown of, of basically the the key findings? I, I mean, I just listened to you talk for like 40 minutes yesterday about results alone. <laughs> so I assume you don't want to share all of it. But um, like a, the key findings in, in your mind. Uh, so during the fatigue protocol, women got way more reps, like basically twice as many. Um, and that, that's doing the repeated sets of five until they until they fail. Correct. Basically. So yeah. so total reps completed during the fatigue protocol. Um, it was like somewhere around thirty for men, somewhere around sixty for women. Mm-hmm. So big difference. Um, 
recovery. So assessing recovery via predicted one rep max and uh, soreness of the pecs, triceps, and front delts. Um, recovery assessments were all similar between sexes. So in spite of the women doing way like almost twice as many sets, they recovered at essentially the same rate as the men did. Um, and that was actually what I hypothesized. And, um, in terms of like non-significant differences, which whatever, like do with that what you will, um, the women like 24 hours post-training were a little more sore than the men, but that wasn't a significant difference. Um, but their, their decrease in predicted one rep max 24 hours post was actually a little smaller than it was for the men. So like strength recovery actually may have been slightly better for the women, um, and, but soreness may have also been slightly greater for the women. Uh, but again, like those differences weren't significant. So don't, don't like go posting around the internet like, oh, Greg said this. He has research to prove it. Like, no, that's dumb. Um, and then all of the various things we looked at to see if, you know, if, if like sleep would affect any of this stuff or stress or um, training background. <laughs> Pretty much nothing was predictive of anything. Um, the So for soreness, 24 hours post-training, um, the men who got more reps during the fatigue protocol tended to be sore than the men who got fewer reps during the fatigue protocol. That relationship did not exist for women. Basically, like one person got 24 sets and the fewest number of sets someone got was three. Um, so like big range there, but that wasn't predictive of how sore people got at all, which I thought was interesting. And the only other factor as far as fatigue goes, the only factor where when you put it in a model also accounting for sex, that also significantly contributed to predicting how many reps people would get during the fatigue protocol was bench press sets per week. So like training volume. Um, such that when even accounting for sex, people with higher training volume tended to get more sets during the fatigue protocol. Uh, I think that's reasonably intuitive. Yeah. Um, other than that though, uh, how long someone had been training, um, like how good of a bencher they were, like IPF points, um, what their training looked like wasn't predictive of how fatigable they were or how well they would recover. Which I thought was, I personally thought that was quite interesting. Yeah. So, you know, we kind of started this conversation talking about how you approached it from a very applied kind of perspective. You know, mm -hmm. viewing the research question, but setting up the study with a lot of ecological validity that theoretically should facilitate application of the findings. Um, so what do you think are kind of the applicable takeaways for somebody who wants to use this to inform their training moving forward? It's hard to say. Uh, the reason it's hard to say is... <sighs> so essentially, when you run a study, you have to come up with a protocol that you think is going to do a good job of testing whatever it is you want to test. For some things, the, the validity thereof and the generalizability is very obvious. So if you want to know how strong someone's bench press is, you work them up to a max. That's how strong they are on the bench press. Like, that's not really a debatable thing. Um, when you're dealing with a construct like fatigability, uh, 
Um, I think my protocol did a pretty good job of assessing that. But, you know, the protocol is what it is. And so the actual like magnitude of the findings we know applies to the bench press using the protocol that I used. But, um, you know, if variables were manipulated, so if we used a weight other than 75%, or if we used different rest intervals, or if we used a different exercise, results may have been different. Um, so I think, I feel pretty good saying that for upper body exercise, if men and women do submaximal sets with similar rest time between sets, women are probably going to be able to do more sets than men and recover at a similar rate. Um, as far as the recovery stuff goes, my findings actually contrast with a recent study by Davies et al. Um, that had women, men and women do five sets of five squats at 80% and then one set to failure and found that for some measures, um, men actually recovered a little faster than women looking at counter movement jump height and concentric knee extension strength. Um, so it could be that maybe women recover at the same rate or for a given level of volume slightly faster for upper body, but maybe men recover a little faster lower body. Davies' study was quite ecologically valid as well. Like, I wish they would have actually assessed squat strength recovery instead of like knee extension strength. But overall, that was that was quite a solid study. Um, so yeah, like we need more work to flesh out some of those details. Um, but I, I feel good saying, at least for the bench press and probably upper body exercise in general, women can probably do more volume or at minimum, men need longer rest periods between sets. Like those, those I think would be the two solid takeaways that I feel the best about. Um, and then if you wanted to generalize a little bit more, I do think women on average are a little less fatigable than men. Um, but that would be a, a pretty big generalization just from my study specifically. I do think when you look at the entire context of the literature, you can support that. But I, I wouldn't draw something that broad just from my one study. Yeah. And luckily, people are going to get their own opportunity to interpret your work, right? I mean, yeah. what, what are you planning to do with it moving forward? Um, we'll get it published. Um, I'm hoping... In a prestigious academic journal? Probably not. I mean, so... I'm, I'm not aiming for like MSSE or something like that. Um, I'd really, really like to get it published in PeerJ. Like mm -hmm. that's my number one choice. Uh, reasons being, I'm, I really support the open science movement. Yeah. Um, and you've put your name behind it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so I definitely want it to be open access. I don't want it to be in a journal that generally isn't open access, but like, you know, will publish an open access article from time to time. Like, I want to support a journal that does specifically, you know, throw its weight behind the open access movement. Um, and PeerJ is good, and its publication cost is lower than some of the other options. Uh, and, and, and they publish good stuff. So that's my first choice. Um, but then, like, another reason I like PeerJ is they say you can talk about your results and share them literally however you want. Um it has a Creative Commons BY 4.0 license, which basically says, you know, your your results are completely in the public domain. As long as someone gives you credit, they can use it however they want. 
And like, I think that's how science should be. Um, so if PRJ will take it, that will also mean that I can do a thorough write-up for the site without like Elsevier trying to sue me. <laughs> Isn't that the damnedest thing? Yeah. Su- suing you for writing about your own work? Yeah. Um, and, and so when you say the site, that, w- that would be strongerbyscience.com. Yeah. Um, so hopefully someday in the near future, you'll be able to get a thorough write-up and that'll give Greg... Uh, you must have spent some some long nights doing all those kind of additional exploratory analyses that were quite informative, but you know, may or may not make it into, you know, the peer reviewed manuscript. Yeah. So yeah. that that would be a good a good kind of avenue that you could still pursue those things and get them out there. Yeah, for sure. So time flies, but it looks like it's just about time to play us out here. All right. Now, to play us out, I was going to hit you with a very generic but very timely question. <laughs> so, the whole bodybuilding strength world, it used to be a world of mythology. Mm-hmm. It was just oral traditions handed down from generations of strong people. And in the last probably 10, 15, maybe 20 years, there's been this push of taking a more evidence-based approach to how we train how we eat things like that and i think an extension of that is there are more people who really like fitness who are getting into higher academic programs so pursuing a bachelor's even a master's sometimes even a phd in the field so the day after kind of finishing your master's when you look back at it for someone who you know, maybe they're about to start college or maybe they just finished a a different bachelor's degree and they are thinking about pursuing a master's in the field. What what kind of advice would you, would you give someone in that position? Oof. Um, Biggest piece of advice would be to not do what I did. Um, A master's program shouldn't, just consume your entire life uh but if you're trying to get a master's while also trying to run two businesses it probably will um so i i do think i think a good time to get a master's would be fresh out of undergrad or if you want to work for a couple years get a job that it wouldn't kill you to walk away from for like while you're in grad school um, the, the path I took is not one that I would recommend. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then just in general, if you want to pursue it, like there, there are, there are several careers where if you don't have at least a master's, you're going to have a tough time. So these days, like strength and conditioning, um, not so much private sector, I don't think, but especially if you want to work for, a college or professional organization most of them are looking for a master's degree so like if that's something you think you want to do definitely need to go to grad school for it um if you're this is kind of out of left field but one thing i would say is i think it's important to distinguish science as an instrument from the state of the literature in the field as it currently is. Um, as Eric alluded to, there 
there's a lot of really good research that is getting published from people who either have some experience coaching or, you know, work closely with coaches and generally know what they're doing. So they're, they're putting out research that's going to be applicable for practitioners. Um, back in the day, there was like the stereotype that, oh, scientists are just nerds and like pencil neck nerds and lab coats that don't know anything. Um, and like that is probably true in some cases, but there are absolutely people who understand strength and conditioning well enough that they're publishing very good, very applicable research. Um, so I, I wouldn't want you to be dissuaded just by that ne- negative stereotype and think like, oh, a lot of the literature doesn't seem to be all that useful and relevant. Therefore, this isn't the place for me. If you find a good advisor who will kind of let you take your applied knowledge and do good work with it, science is absolutely an instrument that is flexible enough to allow you to do research that is going to give people a lot of benefit and utility. Um <sighs> And then in terms of whether you particularly should do it, I guess it kind of depends on what you want to do in the industry. Uh, I mean, if you want to be a professor, like you need to, obviously. Right. Um, If you kind of want to do, if you just want to be like a a personal trainer or like a strength coach at a private facility, um, I don't think... I don't think it's the worst idea to get a master's, but a PhD would would be overkill. Um, and I think I think the value of a master's is that you learn information in undergrad, but you don't learn that much about the actual scientific process and how it all works. And I think that if you're someone who cares about science and like the quote unquote evidence based approach to uh, training people and whatnot, or tr- or just training yourself. Um, you do get more of like a depth of understanding of science if you have actually done it versus like the idiots who just read PubMed abstracts and think they know anything about anything. Um, So I I think that will help give you a little bit more depth there. Can I give a quick quote in that regard? Sure. I don't mean to derail you, but when I was applying for master's programs out of undergrad, uh, I asked for a, a recommendation letter from somebody. And he, I, I was a good undergrad student. I mean, I, you know, I would obsess over the material and get it and then give it back on exams. And he said, I know you're a very good undergrad student, but that doesn't mean you're going to be a very good grad student. Yeah. Because when you go from undergrad to graduate work, you transition from being an information consumer mm-hmm. to someone who synthesizes and hopefully produces mm-hmm. new information. And so he said, never forget that what you're doing is a complete transition. Yeah. This is not an extension of undergrad. Yeah. It's, it's exactly what you've alluded to. The idea of looking at current research and synthesizing new ideas from it, mm-hmm. or even creating your own original research mm-hmm. from scratch, you know? I mean, or, or even if you're not doing that, just generally, if you want to understand what the research in a field is saying you kind of need to know how to read research and to read research. It helps to have done research. So you, you know, what's going on, you know, you you can see behind the page a little bit as you're reading. Correct. Uh, And just to have to like be forced to read research and have your understanding of said research checked by 
your advisor and other professors like to to make sure you know what you're doing and not just like completely jacking up your your interpretations um because man like there's some there's some wild stuff that people come up with that they say is based on science where it's like bro if you actually knew how to read a fucking manuscript you would realize (laughs) how dumb this idea is um yeah and so like i think i think a lot of that is coming from people who mean well but don't have any like graduate training or formal education in the space and so like their good faith efforts are still terrible efforts. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not one to, <laughs> to, you know, shill for the ivory tower academic structures, but I think it takes a very unique person to be able to take the self, the purely self-taught approach mm-hmm. and navigate it effectively. Because as you mentioned, it, it's not just exposing yourself to the material but sometimes your genuine best attempt at interpretations are off base yeah and when it's entirely self-guided there's no one there to correct your course correct and say uh that was a good attempt but have you considered this different Mm -hmm. angle at it yeah and yeah i mean i i started grad school thinking i was quite brilliant and came out feeling much dumber and it was because (laughs) i received plenty of corrections along the way yeah. but but from from really smart smart people who set me on the right course yeah and i i definitely feel like i understand research in general much better now than i did two years ago yeah um another thing that you didn't mention that i'd like to throw in there so sure. i i've been within the university walls for the last like six years which means every year I, there's a new group of undergrads interviewing in our department and, and I'll always sit down and they'll say, ask for advice about graduate school and stuff. One thing to keep in mind if you're thinking about pursuing a master's in the field is that the amount of variability between master's programs in our field is enormous yes. in terms of what you're going to get. So um, there are some master's programs that are super applied. You might even be automatically assigned to work as the strength and conditioning assistant with one of the athletic teams. Mm-hmm you may never see or even hear about a research project happening in those hallways. Yeah. The other side, I I think the program we graduated from is, is the complete opposite where you can't throw a rock without hitting a different research study. There's Mm -hmm. like six labs down the hallway and they're all working, you know, 12, 14 hours a day around the clock. So many studies going on. But if you went into that master's program and your main goal was to get hands-on experience coaching athletes, you would have come out of that and been probably unpleasantly surprised by, by the amount of avenues for exposure to athletes. Yeah, and, and even within a program like that, the, the, the variability in what, what you will study in your lab that like the other students are doing or what your advisor is doing and also like what you will be allowed to do for your own research is also very very fast um great point so like my advisor is actually like he was a he is an exercise oncology guy um and so we had like mostly breast cancer research going on in the lab um had had a schizophrenia study we were helping out with and so like the research that I assisted with, like that's the type of stuff we were doing. But then me and the other master student, uh, he gave us the leeway to do projects for our thesis that we actually cared more about. So 
she looked at the effects of different crank links on different uh, like performance and gas exchange variables for cyclists, um, which has nothing to do with cancer. But Dr. V is like super cool and was like, hey, you want to do this? Cool, do it. Um, and I just looked at bench press, which again has nothing to do with cancer, but Dr. V is chill as hell. And so he was like, this is what you want to do. You're passionate about it. Absolutely. Let's do that. Uh, and not every advisor will give you that leeway. Yeah. So, you know, if you're out there searching for a program, obviously like Greg, Greg mentioned, think about, is that something that's going to really be necessary or, or help you, mm-hmm. you know, get closer to what you want. And then really think carefully about what kind of program and, and kind of who's the right fit for an advisor. Um, and hopefully that's some helpful information out there. Big piece of advice I would give is if, if you want to apply to a program, definitely reach out to the advisor first. Make sure that you know they know your name. When your application crosses their desk, they'll be like, oh, I've interacted with this person before. They seem decent. Um and, you know, talk to them about how your experience in their lab will be. But don't take that at face value. Uh, also talk to the current graduate students who are in their lab. Uh, because some advisors are very forthcoming, very straightforward. And what they tell you about what you can expect from their lab is exactly what you will get from their lab. Sometimes they're uh, somewhat like salespeople. Um, and you'll get kind of a more, a more accurate view of what actually goes on in that lab from the graduate students. So yeah, talk to your prospective advisor, but definitely talk to their current students as well. Yeah. And and as Greg mentioned, maybe think twice about running two businesses while you do your master's. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Greg is a tremendously humble guy. Uh, Once more, I want to congratulate him on finishing his master's and somehow managing to run a couple companies. And you're still married, correct? I think so. And maintain a marriage during the whole process. Um, I think that says more about Lindsay than it does about you. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) No no question. To close out episode two, we've got a great interview with Dr. Jason Kaliva, so stay tuned and enjoy. Welcome to the interview portion of today's podcast. This is Eric Trexler, Stronger by Science, Director of Education. Greg is unfortunately not with us today. Uh, He is collecting data like every good scientist does. Um, But we are very lucky because today we have Jason Kaliva. Uh, He's a professor, uh, associate professor at Coastal Carolina University. you might be saying, who's Jason Kaliva? You do recognize his name. You probably saw it on a paper and thought it was Choliwa. Um, but Jason, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So Jason and I go back. Um, when I was looking at graduate schools, he was one of the people I reached out to. And at the time, you were at Kentucky. Um, and so I, I went out there for the interview process 
I was talking to one of the faculty members and they were like, yeah, we know you've been talking a lot with, with Dr. Uh, Kaliva. And I was like, I, I think you got the wrong guy. I've never met a Kaliva. <laughs> like I was certain that your name was Choliwa. So <laughs> me and this faculty member were having like parallel conversations <laughs> and I thought they had me mixed up with a completely different person. Um, so Jason, for people, surely people have seen your work in the peer reviewed literature. Can you give us a little introduction, you know, kind of what your background is, what you do now? Of course. Well, <clears throat> uh, how far back do you want me to go? Um, <laughs> as far as you'd like, don't, don't, uh, you know, not deepest, darkest secrets, but w whatever you want. Okay. Um, well, my, so academically, my undergraduate is actually in communications with a focus on marketing. And I, I realized pretty early on out of school that I really did not enjoy much that had to do with uh with marketing and sales and i had always loved training so i decided to become a personal trainer and i was very good at training people that were like myself so if you were a meathead and you wanted to become more of a meathead i was your guy uh, <laughs> But then I got this client who was 80 some odd years old and she had just had a stroke and I felt completely clueless and helpless. And I decided to go back to school to take some classes, non-matriculating to learn a little bit more. And much like everything else that happens in my life, I got a little carried away and ended up getting a PhD in applied exercise physiology from Springfield College. So that's kind of the backstory to, to where I am now. I'm currently an associate professor at Coastal Carolina University, or a, a small school in, in South Carolina. Uh, and I also do some, uh, some online coaching uh, in addition to my professorial duties. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of a common thread on our podcast. We, we tend to bring people on that our, their primary appointment is being a meathead and they, they kind of moonlight by doing science or, you know, training people. So you did your PhD at Springfield College, and the, the topic of your dissertation was uh, betaine, correct? Yeah, that's correct. So can you give us a little bit of a background on betaine? Like for, for me, like I've done a lot of my supplement research on some of the heavy hitters, caffeine, creatine, nitric oxide stuff, the things that are kind of front and center. I feel like betaine has kind of been hanging around the periphery of the supplement world for a while. Can you give us like a, a brief background about what it is and, and kind of, I guess it's kind of how it entered the scene? Betaine is a common name for trimethylglycine. So you have a glycine with three methyl groups attached to it. And it was first discovered in, in beets, and that's where it's got its name. And uh, it's rich in not only, uh, not only beets, but also green leafy vegetables like spinach and kale, and to a lesser extent in, uh, in wheat, as well as uh, in some shellfish as well. When I was looking for a topic for my dissertation, I knew I wanted to do something with regards to sports supplementation and how it affected strength and body composition. And so I was looking for something novel to study. Uh, I kind of wanted to be 
to be different and not go the uh, the route of some of the compounds that had been uh, more heavily researched. And I saw a couple studies that were done. So what you're saying ahead. is you, you wanted your lit review to be very difficult. Yeah, actually. It <laughs> <That> sucks. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Keep going. So I saw some studies that were done and uh, in regards to performance. And uh, the first study I found, well, I should back up a second. And when I write my, my review of literatures, uh, I like to collect all the studies, and before I even read any of them, I like to put them in chronological order to try and better tell the story of of whatever I'm uh, doing a lit review on or, or researching. And so the first study I found was done in polio patients back in the 50s, where it improved some metrics of performance. And then there wasn't really a lot until this study came out in horses that was actually done at... UK veterinary. Um, and then there were some studies in uh, like 2008 or nine that showed some improvements in performance, albeit they were pretty contradictory. Some showed improvements in power, while others showed improvements in muscular endurance. And the ones that showed benefits on power didn't show muscular endurance and vice versa. Uh, but what really got me interested as I was researching it is I saw all this uh, work that was done in animals, specifically pigs uh, and broiler chickens. And in pigs, they'd been using it for at least a decade as a dietary additive to increase meat yield and reduce uh, subcutaneous fat, which I thought was really interesting. If it's improving body composition in pigs, maybe it can do this in humans. And only one other study had had looked at it at the time uh, and that study had done it in obese individuals who were not exercising. And so most of the studies in pigs were, were young pigs that the stress of the bones growing put a stress upon the muscles and that maybe resulted in a little greater adaptation. Uh, and then one study I found, and there's a lot of these studies uh, actually coming out of China, they love to research uh, betaine and, uh, and livestock. Um, and they found that pigs that were given uh, these pens to move around in, kind of free-range pigs, I guess, if you will, uh, saw greater improvements in, uh, in, in meat yield than, than pigs that were confined to a very small pen. So that's kind of what gave me the idea to, to do my dissertation on, uh, on trimethylglycine or betaine and, and see how it might impact changes in body composition associated with resistance training. Yeah, I, I love this idea. I've never thought of bulking as trying to increase my meat yield. Um, <laughs> so, so you you want to help these you know young college age people increase their meat yield? Um, had anybody looked at hypertrophy up to that point, or was it all just kind of functional performance outcomes? It was almost all uh, performance outcomes, physical performance outcomes. There was one study that that did measure body composition um, that wasn't in the obese subjects, but it was very short in duration. I think it was like two weeks in duration uh, and there was no, no training component uh, with it. So it was uh, untrained individuals. Yeah. So, okay. So you got this idea. Um, you've, 
you know, you, you did your lit review, you say, okay, this might have some uh, benefit for body composition, lean mass, you know, body fat performance. Uh, you, you had a performance component too, right? Yeah. Uh, one RMs and uh, vertical jump, but then tracking the amount of volume that was occurring during training as well. Okay. So in a nutshell, I mean, what did you, what did you end up finding? We found improvements in lean mass, um, improvements in reductions in fat mass and, uh, but no real performance benefit. There was, uh, a, a decrease in the vertical jump of the subjects taking the placebo, but there was no increase in, uh, in the vertical jump of the betaine subjects. Uh, we also looked at the lean cross-sectional area of the arm and the thigh. And to do that, we did girth measurements and then took skin folds at the quadrants to give an estimation of, uh, of lean cross-sectional area. And so saw a greater increase in lean cross-sectional area of the, of the arm than of the thigh. Uh, interestingly, in, in one of the pig studies I found, they found greater increases in the hams than in the butts uh, in the pigs. So that was an interesting little tidbit to try and present at my defense. Yeah. So, okay. And that was, I mean, what was that, like 2013-ish? Yeah. Okay. So what I like to do, we bring on people who do research you hear every researcher say like, you know, well, one study is just one study. You know, you don't want to make all your conclusions based on one paper. And then with interviews, people are like, spend 45 minutes telling me about one study, please. So as a person who studied betaine, who's kind of seen the literature evolve, what's your current status in terms of betaine's applications? Like, do you think there's a a useful role for it for people that are interested in supplementing to increase muscle, lose fat, enhance performance, maybe? It's a great question. The We did a study a couple of years ago, and we looked at um, the interaction between betaine supplementation and resistance training in young women, and we found uh, an increase in, uh, in, in a reduction in fat mass compared to placebo, but no real clear improvements in, in lean mass or, uh, uh, or, or rectus femoris muscle thickness compared to placebo, and also no improvements in performance, again, measured with 1RMs and vertical jump. So I think it may have a slight benefit in regards to uh, increases in lean mass and, and maybe a slightly greater benefit in regards to reductions in fat mass. Um, and now this is all molecular studies coming from animals, so take it if you will. But in, uh, in pigs and chickens, betaine suppresses lipogenesis um, and, uh, and increases AMPK uh, mRNA expression. So it, it may help someone to lose fat in that regards, but this hasn't been replicated in humans. Um, so if your goal is to increase your strength, your one RM, it's probably not all that helpful. Yeah. Um, we're going to look at it hopefully in CrossFit athletes in the fall to see again, to, to add more data to the body composition outcomes, but to see if it does improve, uh, improve strength endurance. 
uh, in terms of muscle mass, it's a really powerful osmolite. Uh, and so to give you an idea, when, when I was doing my dissertation, I had to capsulate all the, all the treatments and all the placebos. I had to make like 9,000 capsules or something <laughs> ridiculous like that <laughs> with a little cap and quick machine going 50, 50 capsules at a time. And, uh, and I was doing it, and I and this was in uh, in April in Connecticut, so it's not crazy humid like it is in the the Carolinas. But I stepped away, I took a break, and I came back, and there was a little bit of betaine that had spilled, maybe like half the size of a penny on the table. And I came back, and it was just a pool of water. And wow. so I was like, "That's interesting." So every time I would make it, I would leave out like a little a little bit of betaine and. Uh, and come back and see what happened. And every time I came back, it, it, it was just water sitting there. So that's probably what's happening uh, within the muscles as well is that it's drawing water into the muscles kind of, kind of like the same way that creatine volumizes the muscles. And, and maybe that uh, is beneficial in terms, of, uh, in terms of strength endurance or in terms of creating a more hospitable environment for for protein synthesis, but that's yet to be seen. So, I mean, currently, do you see betaine being included in a lot of uh, supplement formulas on the market? Like, I don't think I know anyone that specifically uses betaine as a single ingredient, you know? Um, are, are you familiar with a lot of people using it or maybe adding it in like pre-workout formulas or anything? Yeah, which is interesting. I think now food sells a... Uh, trimethylglycine and uh and and then there's the beta power which comes from uh dupont nutrition though i'm not sure if that's available uh on the retail market or just as a wholesale but most of most of the trimethylglycine that i've seen is is in pre-workout supplements which usually the dose is a little bit lower than than what we've used in the studies and uh and also it's not wait 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 you're telling me that a pre-workout formula is underdosed for something? Never. I, I don't believe it, man. <laughs> <laughs> the, those formulas that have 60 ingredients and the scoop is like 10 grams of, of actual weight? I don't believe it. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. Go on. I'm just being a smart ass. <laughs> no, we, we can go down that road uh, as well. <laughs> Um, but, but anyway, you were saying you do see betaine in some of these, uh, I see, yeah, I see it in like in the multi-ingredient pre-workout supplements and there's a gazillion of them on the market. Um, and, and usually it's, it's not at least in the doses that we've studied, it's usually about half that dose. And, and just like beta alanine, which is also usually underdosed in those products, it's a, it's a supplement that. I don't think acts acutely. I think it's something you need to take for like two to four weeks and allow it to accumulate in the tissues to exert its effect. Um, unfortunately, unlike beta alanine, you don't get the paresthesia, so you're probably not going to get the sweet placebo effect. Yeah. So one, one time I was in a uh, kind of like an undergraduate lab class. It's weird. I actually told the story last night. <laughs> I was <laughs> hanging out with Greg and some friends. But it was like an undergrad research methods class. So we did like uh, a little pretend lab, like just to learn how studies work. And uh, 
we're trying to figure out, well, what should we do for this little pretend study? And I was pushing really hard, like, let's do a little beta alanine thing. Like we can get the doses for cheap and, you know, it's, you know, it'd be quick and easy and we could do a little experiment. And a lot of people were a little hesitant, but just by like sheer force of will, I like insisted that our class was going to do this. The TA um, actually accidentally gave us like, I think it was about a 10 gram dose. <laughs> like he had messed up like the size of the scoop. <laughs> and, and so every kid in this undergrad class is just like, acting like they're wearing a suit made of bees like we're all crawling <laughs> out of our skin and everyone's looking at me like hey eric thanks for uh <laughs> thanks for saying we should do this but in my defense it could have been worse because I, I heard that like a couple years ago in a similar scenario they accidentally gave a bunch of students like 30 grams of caffeine did you hear about that no yeah, I forget where it occurred. I think it was uh, across the Atlantic somewhere. But I, I forget if they're trying to do a real study or just like a little in-class kind of experiment. But they accidentally, they intended to give 300 milligrams and they accidentally gave like 30 grams of caffeine. And fortunately, nobody died. But like, I think two of them had to go on dialysis, um, like very acutely. Um, but yeah, it was... So it could have been worse is the moral of that story. Wow. 30, I mean, even three grams of caffeine is If, if you, if you uh, have I've, three grams, you're going to have a bad day. If you have 10, you could die. If you have 30, you probably should die. <laughs> you know what I mean? Have you ever taken niacin on an empty stomach? Um, only in big multi-ingredient formulas where I, I couldn't really suss out exactly what was the niacin where you didn't get the flush right it was like the only times i've had niacin i think they were included in pre-workout so i was getting the beta alanine and the caffeine and the niacin so it's kind of hard to tell what's what you know what i mean yeah i i talk about niacin and sport nutrition and one of my students came back one time the next day and told me he took niacin and said he thought he was going to die because he got this huge niacin flush. And he said it was a combination between like the beta alanine tingling and really bad sunburn. All I could do was laugh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. The, the thing with beta alanine is and niacin it's like if you don't see it coming and nobody warns you like yeah you could you could take a real heavy scoop and be like okay so this is it for me <laughs> but uh now you've have you done some research on pre-workouts themselves because I, I know you talk about it a lot i've seen you talk about it at conferences and stuff i have a i have this one ongoing project that currently is uh is on hold as they work on our labs but one of the things with with pre-workouts and really the entire uh, market of pre-workouts and all the research that's been done on pre-workouts is they've all been compared to a placebo. And so you have the issue that, that you alluded to with some of the active ingredients being underdosed. Uh, but then you also have a very large dose of caffeine in these products. 
And caffeine is ergogenic in, in most instances for most people. And so when you're comparing it to a placebo, it's not really telling you whether that product is any more effective than taking a 15 cent uh, caffeine tablet. Um, and it's not telling you whether any of those other ingredients are acting ergogenically or ergolytically, so actually reducing the effects of caffeine um, within that product. And so that's something that's kind of been bothering me over the past uh, like three or four years is all these studies that compare pre-workout to a placebo and okay, the pre-workout is safe and, and another study comes out and comparing another pre-workout to a placebo and looking at heart rate and blood pressure and energy expenditure. And, and it's not really giving us in the scientific field, any, any information. It's not new. It's not novel. It's not really, uh, not really beneficial. So we're doing a little kind of pet project comparing this, this one pre-workout supplement against an equal dose of caffeine against a placebo. And the, the manufacturer was, uh, was kind enough to, to get on board with this study and, and provide us with the pre-workout as well as the caffeine and the placebo to, to kind of put, uh, put his product on the line to see if it is any more beneficial. Yeah. I mean, that's gutsy. Cause you'll, uh, I've been in, when you write about creatine or caffeine or beta alanine, you have to at least address the pre-workout literature. And most of the times I've had to do that in a manuscript, I say, Hey, there's this pre-workout stuff, but I don't know, like there's like 35 ingredients. I, I, I can't really make a, a determination about what's going on there. Um, but that's cool. Um, and it's cool that they're willing to put their product on the line like that. You know what I mean? And say, I think that this combination of ingredients is more than just caffeine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a smaller, uh, smaller brand label. Um, they've only got a few products, but they do a pretty a pretty thorough job of kind of vetting what they're, what they're putting into it. Yeah. I remember back in the day, it was like a, a thing where people that were into supplements were getting their own caffeine powder, just like pure powder. I, I don't know if you could still do that. Um, cause I know people have overdosed on it and died, unfortunately. Um, I'm not sure there's a, we have the pure caffeine powder and, uh, in a digital scale and when uh the person who's blind or who's running the blind of the study so i don't know what people are drinking and they don't know what they're drinking it's a double blind study but when she when she puts together the um uh the treatments she wears a a, ga a little like nurse's mask when she's dealing with the caffeine yeah i i used to always it would just shock me when i as a teenager i'd spend so much money on pre-workouts and then one time i was like oh i'm gonna get some caffeine powder which i don't recommend by the way if you don't know what you're doing don't touch <laughs> pure caffeine powder okay like for real like people get it mixed up with their creatine and a creatine sized dose of caffeine powder will mess you up so don't do it however i did it and uh, it was just incredible. Like you could get like a lifetime supply of caffeine for like $30. Like you would never see the end of that supply of caffeine when you get it in powder form. But again, that's not an endorsement. So this, you're talking about blinding and stuff. Um, 
and, and different experimental protocols. That kind of segues nicely. Um, you guys recently had a poster and a, a manuscript that came out about statistical reporting and exercise science. Can you tell me and the listeners a little bit about that project? Well, it was Conrad Ernest's brainchild. I don't want to take uh, too much credit for it. It was, it was his idea and, uh, and something that he had been noticing. And when you look at the peer review process for, for publishing any manuscript, at least in our field, I can't, I can't speak to, to fields outside of, uh, of exercise science and sport nutrition, but uh, they're pretty vague. There's, there's really not um, – each journal doesn't have instructions as far as what to look for um, in terms of evaluating the statistics of the, whether it was appropriate or not. And it's kind of left to each editor – and, and each reviewer. So there's a high level of autonomy, which, which can be both a good and a bad thing. Uh, but essentially what, what we noticed was a lot of the stats were being reported incorrectly. So generally when you report statistics, when you report like characteristics, you report the mean and the standard deviation. And when you report change variables, you report confidence intervals associated with them. Um, what we found was people were reporting the mean and they're reporting the standard error, which is a, uh, which is not the correct variance, uh, statistic to use. It it very much underestimates or or gives an uh, impression of a much lower, uh, variance in, in the, in the data collected. Um, yeah, if the reader's not paying attention, they might interpret it as a standard deviation, and, and it would look like a very small standard deviation. Exactly. Uh, we were finding some papers that reported no, uh, no variance statistic at all. Um, a lot of papers weren't reporting effect sizes or weren't, weren't reporting the correct effect sizes. A lot of papers uh, were not putting forth a, a primary hypothesis or any hypothesis, any directed hypothesis at all. Um, the other thing we found was uh, there really wasn't any difference between what you would consider a, a high tier journal in our field and, uh, and more of it's called like an entry level journal Yeah. Um, in terms of these uh, um, errors in statistical reporting. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, I've always been really interested in stats and my disclaimer is interested does not mean good. You know, like I don't claim to be an expert statistician. I just think they're important. And I think the more a researcher expands that skill set, the more effective they can be. So these types of papers are remarkably helpful. Um, What do you think is the the root cause of this? Why why is statistical reporting uh, not more universally understood? And why are the guidelines not um, kind of streamlined and standardized? I'm, I'm not totally sure, to be honest. Um, it's it's curious why more journals haven't adopted the uh, the consort paper, uh, which kind of lays out how you should report your your statistics. Um, some of the journals we submitted this paper to uh, actually quite a few rejected our our paper and said it doesn't apply to us or, or whatever. So. 
Um, I'm not sure why. Were they correct? No. <laughs> were, I knew it. <laughs> they had, uh, you know, we, we, we had scrubbed uh, their day. And this was just for one year. This was just for the, uh, the 2017 calendar year. So yeah. we had scrubbed uh, many different databases or many different journals and just went through one at a time. And, and we were only focused on sport nutrition um, trials. So anything that had some sort of performance or body composition outcome related to, uh, to sport nutrition or sport supplementation. Yeah. Um, so basically the journal didn't want to publish a thing saying that they looked kind of bad. Yeah, I guess so. Um, or, or maybe they genuinely didn't have an interest you know, to be fair. It could be. Absolutely. So one of the things that's tricky, um, my girlfriend is doing her PhD in psychology and psychology is a field that has very much embraced quantitative sciences. Um, so her, her department has a whole branch of people that are just quantitative psychologists. Like they develop new ways to do stats. Um, and I think one of the things that encourages that is that they have sample sizes to play around with. So in the sport nutrition exercise science literature, a lot of times you have studies that are remarkably low in sample size. And so if you have a small sample size, you can have the most expansive statistical skill set in the world, but you can't use any of it. You know what I mean? Like the, there's not enough statistical power to actually implement some of these more sophisticated stats. And I have a theory that that's one of the reasons that the education that an exercise science student receives in statistics is generally not that great. Um, I, I think as a field from the top down, we've never really gotten that into it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I totally agree. Um, just looking at my own personal education and in doctoral statistics. Um, it's interesting that you say that too, because I'm, I'm reading this book right now called The Undoing Project, and it's related to some psychologists back in the, the 70s, some Israeli psychologists, and, uh, and kind of tearing apart at these, these different theories they had back then and how it really was the Wild West. Um, but yeah, a lot of, a lot of the studies are either underpowered or, or have a very low, low sample size. And so you are really limited in, in what kind of statistics that, that you can run. Um, there's also not quite as much modeling that's happening, I think, in, uh, in sport and exercise science as there are in, in psychology. I mean, yeah, it's the thing that I found is a lot of exercise science programs at the, the graduate level don't really have a lot of really high level stat courses within department. And if you want those, you often have to go out of department. And one of the issues is that you might be learning stats that because they're teaching mostly to students kind of within their wheelhouse, it's not super applicable, you know? So like if you... I remember one of the stat courses I took was quite good, but start to finish a full year of coursework, we never got to repeated measures analysis. Um, 
so basically the entire spectrum of what was learned only applied to independent groups study designs um we don't really have a ton of pure independent group study designs with no repeated measures in, in sport nutrition exercise science so it, it's tricky I, I think um i think sports science benefits from papers like yours that say hey we have a standardization problem and sports science benefits from papers like the, the big paper that came out with uh stork uh about kind of improving transparency and methodology in sports science um I know like Andrew Vygotsky was was pushing that hard. And I think Greg was part of that as well. But I mean, these are good things. You know, th these are not catastrophic. The sky is falling things of like, oh, the field's in shambles. These are good things. They're, they're people proactively saying, hey, let's try to standardize some things so that we're all speaking the same language. And let's make sure that our language is actually valid. Yeah, I, I agree. Um you know, challenge will will create positive adaptation, and that's certainly something that that we need in our field. Um, I, I have my students uh, do an article review as part of uh, sport nutrition in relation to uh, they each select a dietary supplement, and because none of them know the difference between a peer-reviewed article and a blog. And furthermore, none of them can really know the difference between like a systematic review or meta-analysis and some sort of clinical trial or trial. I have them clear the articles with me first and I give them a little bit of feedback on it, on how to understand it. And so uh, there is a, such a huge, just wide range of methodology that I see in terms of... Uh, I don't know, complete reporting of the methodology yeah. versus leaving a lot out and a lot of questions, um, especially in some of these uh, journals that aren't indexed in, in PubMed that they somehow find articles from. Yeah. I mean, it, it's an interesting time. To, I, I used to do a similar exercise with my students, but it was not an exercise science course. So I'd let them pick paper from whatever field they wanted. And the, the, the range of methodologies is, is obviously expected to be broad, but even just the, there are certain fields that if you aren't fully conformed to their agreed upon standardized methods in reporting, not a chance. It's just not going to get through. Um, and some fields, um, I'm very close friends with somebody who's a statistician who has worked in multiple fields. You know, he's a pure stat guy. So whoever hires him, that's the field he's in. And he said a similar thing happened in the field of nursing research. Um, he was involved with it, I think, for at least a couple decades. And he said, from when I started, the analytical approaches, the methodological reporting, it was just a night and day difference from the time I entered the field to the time that I moved on. So fields grow up at different rates. And I think exercise science is at um, kind of right at the start of a, of a very positive growing phase. And it, it kind of coincides with a more global thing, right? Like I just saw the University of California system failed to re renew their journal subscription to Elsevier. Um, like there, there's all these big uh, 
rumblings of change when it comes to the publishing process, how universities do academics, you know, how much, how much people will start transitioning toward maybe online educations and how do we deal with, uh, the costs and the return on investment of higher education. Like, I feel like there's a lot of things that are kind of converging right now when it comes to science and education. Um, my question to you as somebody who's in higher education, where's all this going? Do, do you have any uh, positive or dire predictions for the near future? I don't know about predictions, but I've definitely made some, some observations that seem to be uh, pretty backed up by uh, more experts in, in regards to analyzing higher education. And so I think the return on investment is a really, really good question. We currently live in a society where uh, it's kind of viewed that college is and a college education is the answer to all of our economic woes and economic uh, discrepancies um, or inequalities. And, and I'm not sure if that's the the answer and i'm not sure if that is true especially not for everyone um it seems like college for the students is a thing that they have to do that that they feel is you know the first step in in their life that is kind of pre-scripted if that makes sense yeah it's like it's like the 13th grade right you finish 12th grade in high school and you go to 13th grade it's just what you do that's kind of what it seems like. And a lot of them don't really have any, any passion in anything that they're studying. Um, I would say at Coastal that 50% of our exercise science students don't even exercise. Not they don't train, not they're not competing, but they don't even exercise. And so Trying so the, to, the degree is kind of a means to an end because it knocks out a bunch of useful prerequisites, basically. Something like that. Yeah. Um, and as you're, you're aware, the costs of college have, have gone way, way up. And I can assure you it's not because faculty are, are getting paid more. Um, <laughs> yeah. Much like everywhere else in education, uh, you know, we're asked to do more with less, but the uh, the amenities of of all these schools is really what is driving up this uh, this cost of higher education. So, and I hate to sound like a salty old man, but I remember in undergrad, you know, we had a very small dorm room with with two beds in it that we could either bunk or have separate, and that was how we lived, and. Now the the dorm rooms are becoming much more luxurious. A lot of times you have apartment styles where you don't have to uh, we don't have to share a room. Um, Coastal has essentially subbed out most of their their living to contractors, and so they have pools and tiki bars, and it, it's outrageous. <laughs> LS, it's like a college resort. Know. It really is. And I don't want to just pick on my institution because it's, it's everywhere. LSU just put in a, a lazy river in the shape of LSU that cost them uh, <laughs> millions of dollars. <laughs> like, oh, so man. all these colleges are competing to get more students 
And, and one of the ways they're doing it is by offering more amenities. And we're not just talking about physical amenities like this, but, but non-academic departments and then all the administrators that have to run all those departments and then all the insurance and stuff that, that goes into it as well. So all of that's driving up the cost. And it's probably not going to change until students and parents start realizing that's really what they're paying for and, and, and demanding uh, a different model. Um, a lot very well could go to uh, online education. It's a lot cheaper to... Uh, to offer a course online than a brick and mortar course, kind of kind of getting sidetracked off this, but probably most of the students in college don't need to go to college and, and could do something else that they find uh, that they find interesting. I love education. I think education is important to provide people with the thinking skills and the knowledge to better interpret the world, but I don't know if the cost is going to justify it all. And I don't know when that tipping point is, is going to be. Yeah. No, it's an interesting question. You bring up the idea of a new model and I feel like it's analogous when it comes to higher education and academic publishing is that we are locked into models that were established a very long time ago and they've always been how publishing or higher education works like this is the system and what we're finding is that we, we might not necessarily need those systems to be the way they always have been um, so things like online education online open access publishing that doesn't require the costs of printing um, we're seeing that technology is kind of forcing us to encounter these um decisions where we're kind of locked into these systems. But if we made the system today, would we design it the same way? And if the answer is no, then that probably means we could make some useful revisions, you know? Yeah. When was the last time you, uh, you picked up a, a printed journal, like not printed an article that you downloaded online to highlight and write on, but actually like a periodical. Right. Yeah. No, it happened. Um, I was cleaning out my office after I graduated and there were some dusty old rags in the way. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was like an MSSE copy from like the, the mid 1990s when I was like four years old. But no, by the time I got into the world of caring about journals, that was already done. Like that was, I've never actually gone to a librarian or a friend or a, a, a mentor and said, do you happen to have a hard copy of this journal laying around? It, it's never happened in my life. Yeah. Everything is online, which is, which is great. Um, and there's more and more and more publishers. And it seems, I don't know what came first, the chicken or the egg, the, um, you know, the pressure to, to publish more frequently and, and, and higher volumes and, uh, and then more publishers and, and going back and forth. But I just wonder, some of the real seminal scientists, maybe some like physicists, how, how many publications do they have on their Vita? Like some of the people that we really think about in physics, uh, obviously Einstein is 
is one, uh, but Watt and all those people, and then in exercise science, Karpovich and uh, uh, some of the people from Auburn uh, way, way back in the day, how many publications do they have that are really impactful and, and really meaningful compared to the, the desire today to just really build up your CV with, with publications when some of these studies are in my opinion, kind of uh, kind of rush to to get enough subjects to publish rather than to get enough subjects to really uh, to really seek out the truth. Yeah, no, I mean, there there are plenty of fields where people have won Nobel prizes with less than ten or twenty publications, you know. Um, and you're right. The, the question is, are you doing research to publish or to answer questions? You know. I know that Greg often talks about the idea of imposing a limit, you know, the idea that if you're a university professor, you're only allowed to be involved with two published papers per calendar year. And if we imposed a limit like that, how much, so instead of chasing more, people would be saying, I only have two publications to work with. These things have to be phenomenal if I want to get tenure. You know what I mean? So it's almost shifting the focus of instead of how much more can I do, how much better can I do with a fixed amount of publications? Um, I don't know how that would work. There's upsides and downsides. But um, as a general statement, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about current issues in, in science and publishing and higher ed. Now, I'm, I'm about to be 28 and I spent the last 10 years uh, in the university setting. So obviously I support higher education and research and science and, and the publication process, but we should always be open to making processes better. You know what I mean? So I've had the absolute best times of my life working on research, publishing papers, being in the university system. I've had basically most of my life <laughs> within those, those systems and processes. But it's always it's always interesting to revisit how we do things and how we might do them better. Yeah, I I agree. I think uh, you know, just being in academia and on the other side of the desk, and and maybe this is holds true in publishing as well. But it seems that we keep taking this uh, the consumer is always right and this consumer model to higher education. Um, and, and what is the, I think, I think in our country, especially, uh, cause there are so many universities, we really need to, it's a philosophical question. What is the, what is the role of higher education and institutions of higher learning in modern society? Is it to prepare young people for economic production and economic independence uh, or is it to seek the truth? Um, and I think once we can answer that question, uh, we can maybe refine the institutions of higher education, how they're set up and, and how learning takes place. But until we stop viewing students as consumers and once again view them as students. Pupils, you know, trainees. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, well, Greg is going to be super pissed that he missed this discussion. This is like his favorite thing to talk about. Um, but I'll deal with the ramifications of that. 
So today, I don't know when this episode goes up. Today's March 25th, 2019. So let's pencil in um, March 25th, 2029. Why don't you come back on and we'll see if you fixed uh, all these issues in higher education. I might not have a job. <laughs> I try to. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Really push, uh, really push the um, the protections of tenure. Yeah, that's what they're there for. <laughs> I believe in you. Um, okay, so one question I want to ask before we go: We're, we're really thankful for your time. Um, it's been awesome to chat. I love having you on, and hopefully, we'll have you on again. Um, one thing we like to ask people: we we bring on all these evidence based people that are interested in fitness, interested in science. But a lot of people have like a thing or two that they do that isn't necessarily evidence-based. So either they do it themselves or with their clients or something, but something that either kind of flies in the face of the current evidence or there's just no evidence supporting yet. Is there anything that you do or that you have clients do that, that kind of fits that bill? Hmm. No, I, I can't really think of anything that, uh, that, that we've done. Actually, yeah, I'll give you one example. And I don't know if it flies in the face of evidence or if it isn't evidence-based, but I, I had an athlete just compete in, a, uh, in, in the bikini division. And we did cryotherapy um, a couple days before her position, uh, or her competition, excuse me, on her lower body to uh, see if we could draw out some additional fluid and, and inflammation to, uh, to leave her legs and her lower body a little more defined. Whether it worked or not, I, I honestly don't know. I don't think it uh, had any negative impacts. Yeah. Were, were you pushing that or was the client pushing that? She had actually asked about it. Um, and so I gave it some thought and, and I thought that might've been the best time to use it because, uh, uh, icing, ice baths, things like that tend to, uh, at least blunt some of the molecular, um, indicators of adaptation to resistance training. Uh, so I didn't want to do it during the, during the off season, um, or, or during much of the competition phase where uh, the inflammation, the little bit of inflammation and, and debris and everything kind of signal for adaptation. But, but I thought maybe it would be beneficial if we did it right before the show, if we could uh, cut down any, any lingering inflammation. I mean, obviously, we, we deloaded and, and tapered leading up to the show, but see if we could cut down any any sort of lingering inflammation to, to leave a more harder defined look, especially in the lower body. Yeah. And so your interpretation was either a neutral to a slight positive benefit. Yeah. She, she definitely looked better than, uh, came in in a lot better shape than her, than the previous year. Um, a lot more defined and, and whether there's so many factors that, yeah. that could play a role in that um part of it was just overall better co conditioning and a lower body fat percentage lower body fat but but whether it, it helped or not i'm not sure um anecdotally uh you know you, you you feel a little bit better the next day you feel a little less sore 
after sitting in a uh, an ice bath. So maybe it was mental. Yeah, could be. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, it's definitely something. I, I there's certain questions with physique athletes. I don't know if we'll ever have an answer to. You know, how do you? <laughs> who's going to run that study to say, oh yeah, if you do a little cryotherapy a couple days before you look subjectively leaner. I mean, th- that's exactly what we're talking about. Some of those things that kind of fit into the periphery of it's not necessarily evidence-based, but Hey, here's a thing that some people do. But, um, today was great. So we, you know, we, we talked about, um, betaine, we talked about, kind of the state of science and academic publishing and higher education. And ultimately, I I think we're at kind of a starting point of a lot of growth and maturation. And I think it's all positive growth. And it's good knowing that people like you, Jason, are in these academic structures and promoting these positive changes. So thank you for what you do for sports science, for higher education. And thank you for coming on and sharing your time with us. It was a blast. I I appreciate you having me on. I'd love to come back sometime. Absolutely. Greg's going to be so upset he missed this, so he'll probably schedule a uh, impromptu part two at some point. (laughs) That'd be awesome. All right. Take care. All right. Thanks for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. Now, Greg and I are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter. So before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, visit strongerbyscience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.